0: 2 Corinthians chapter 10, now I, Paul, myself, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble among you in person but bold toward you in absence, I beg you that when I am present I will not need to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think we are living according to the flesh." For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And we are ready to punish any disobedience once your obedience is complete. Look at what is obvious. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, let him remind himself of this. Just as he belongs to Christ, so do we. For if I boast a little too much about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for tearing you down, I will not be put to shame. I don't want to seem as though I am trying to terrify you with my letters. For it is said, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak and his public speaking amounts to nothing." Let such a person consider this, what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will also be in our actions when we are present. For we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with someone who commends themselves, but in measuring themselves by themselves, in comparing themselves to themselves, they lack understanding. We, however, do not boast beyond measure, but according to the measure of the area of ministry that God has assigned to us, which reaches even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we had not reached you, since we have come to you with the gospel of Christ. We are not boasting beyond measure about other people's labors. On the contrary, we have the hope that as your faith increases, our area of ministry will be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel to the regions beyond you without boasting about what has already been done in someone else's area of ministry." So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, for it is not the one commending himself who is approved, but the one the Lord commends.
1: good morning. If you're ever criticized, this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is for you. I think criticism is obviously a a big problem because there are so many cartoons about it. I found this cartoon recently. I think it's pretty apt. uh, Early art critic. Kind of a metaphor for life, I thought, as I looked at that, right? Doesn't seem like we live in a world filled with people who have clubs ready to criticize us no matter what we do. You know, it occurred to me, we pay people to criticize, not just art critics. They're music critics, they're movie critics, political critics, we call pundits, get paid good money to criticize, sports critics, we call analysts, editorial writers. Even if you're part of a garden club, somebody's going to criticize your flowers. If you fail, somebody will criticize If you succeed, somebody will criticize more. I remember years ago hearing uh, Paul Harvey say, uh, you will always find the most clubs under the tree with the most fruit. The more you succeed, the more you can anticipate being criticized. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you can expect people are going to criticize. Now, all criticism isn't bad. Of course, in fact, even unfair criticism can be good if we respond to it well, we can grow. On the other hand, if we don't respond well, not only won't we grow, but we'll get worn out and break a relationship or dishonor God. So today in Second Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul actually begins two chapters where he responds to unfair critics. They're trying to undermine him and his ministry And he spent some time responding. We learned from his example. So we respond well. Dale Carnegie said, any fool can criticize, complain, and condemn, and most fools do. But it takes character and self-control to be understanding and forgiving. You're going to be criticized. How How do we respond well? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can trust that you are in this place. We thank you that your word is true. I pray that you would speak to us clearly and that you would be honored. Through Christ I pray, amen. amen. Notice we begin, in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, I, Paul, myself appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble among you in person, but bold toward you when absent, I don't know if there are many leaders in history who are better leaders than the Apostle Paul, who writes more than half the New Testament. He continues to be led, er, to be followed and, and, and quoted today, and yet Paul was criticized. And if Paul gets opposed, you'll be opposed as well. They criticized Paul for so many different things. They, 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 they opposed him, they questioned his, the genuineness of his conversion when he first came to Christ. Wherever he went and preached, it was not unusual for there to be critics opposing him, even to the point of running him out of town. In this chapter, they criticized Paul for being two-faced. That's where verse 1 begins when he responds, I who am humble among you in person, but bold toward you when absent. See, when Paul would write to them, what he would write would call them to repentance, but they would repent and change, and so his tone would be different when he would arrive, but now his critics are like, he's two-faced. What kind of leader is that? They challenged Paul's authority as an apostle. See, the norm for an apostle of Christ was that you had to be with Christ during his three and a half years of ministry. Paul wasn't. Paul uh, was uh, led to Christ when Christ stopped him on the road to Damascus when he was indulged after the resurrection. and And so now they're saying, Paul's not a legitimate apostle. Even the apostle Paul said, I am an apostle born out of season. So he responds in verse 8. He says, if I boast a little bit too much about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up, not tearing you down, I'll not be put to shame. He adds in verse 13, the end of verse 13, my ministry reaches even to you. Hear what he's doing? He's saying, if my authority is illegitimate, what's that say about? you. I brought Christ to you. I started the church that you're a part of. If I'm not legitimate, then neither are you. They even criticized Paul's appearance. Verse 10, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak. His public speaking amounts to nothing. You ever expect somebody to look a certain way, you've heard them on the radio maybe, and then, or you've read their writing, and then all of a sudden you see them and kind of like, hmm, Paul writes so powerfully, they're expecting Superman, he shows up, they get Clark Kent. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, described Paul physically this way. He said he had crooked legs, a unibrow, a crooked Roman nose, short and bald. Now, of course, we are not surprised that a spiritual leader is short and bald. That is often the appearance of why they weren't impressed by that, I don't know. But when Paul shows up, they expect him to have this powerful presence, but he shows up and he's kind of soft, modest, not a flamethrower. Oh, when he's not here, he's powerful. When he gets here, he's a powder puff. They severely criticized Paul. They'll cr- criticize you as well if you follow Christ. So Paul says, I appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. How do we respond with understanding? Um, I think one thing that's helpful, I'll just kind of say as an aside, is to help, it helps to understand why the criticism hurts so much. If you read this passage more carefully than we have time to, you'll see that with Paul. For instance, the criticism hurts because it comes from an unexpected source. You expect it from enemies, not from friends. He thought these were friends, and and they are, but they're attacking him. Criticism hurts often because it hits us where we're vulnerable. It's true that Paul wasn't an apostle like the other apostles. It's true that he wasn't impressive in appearance. You know, your enemies know how to People who push they know how to push your buttons, don't they? What they say may only be 5% true, maybe 75% false, but it still can hurt. Criticism also hurts when it's a reward for doing good. The Apostle Paul has brought Christ to them, and what's the reward? Criticism. That's kind of bitter. Maybe you sacrifice time to help people, and how do they respond? In gratitude? No, they're upset that you don't do more, that you haven't done it sooner that you haven't done it better. Maybe you stand up for biblical morality. And even Christians will say, well, you're just so judgmental. You need to be more loving. People give their lives to Christ and their friends and family will criticize sometimes. My dad, I've shared with you before, my dad's father was an alcoholic and my dad was his only son. And dad said his dad really wanted a drinking buddy. But my dad saw his dad's alcoholism and his uncle's alcoholism and said he was never going to drink. He said his dad never quite got over the fact that he wouldn't be a drinking buddy for him. Maybe that's the case for you in some way. You know, Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. That's the way the ancestors used to treat the false prophets. There are some Christians today who pride themselves because lost people never criticize them because lost people are always comfortable around. They never make anybody lost feel uncomfortable. Jesus, congratulations. That's how evil people used to treat the false prophets as well. Well done. First Peter chapter 4 verse 14, Peter says, "If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you're blessed." Paul says when attacked, we need to respond with meekness and gentleness, and, and it helps to understand why it hurts so much so we don't over react. The first wisdom, I think, in responding to criticism is when criticized sometimes, <laughs> well, let me start with this, uh, don't respond in the flesh. That's Paul's first admonition, verse three. Although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. Now, immediately, sort are like, what's wrong with this war language? That's kind of militant, isn't it? I'm really thankful for my Old Testament professor because he's given us language that we use here often at New Life. My Old Testament professor used to say when you read the Bible, you really understand that life does not unfold as one story, but as two. You read the Old Testament and you see there's the lower story, that's the human story, what Paul would call the flesh. What people can see, it's what's in the newspapers, it's what's in the history books. But, he says, there's a second story as you read the Bible. It's the upper story. It's the story where God is always at work. And Paul would say, it's the spiritual story. It's where there's a spiritual warfare going on all the time. And it is real. And it's a warfare between God and the enemies of evil. The, 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 the evil ones in, in that army. And what we need to realize, some people are like, wow, you shouldn't talk about Christianity like warfare. Do you understand spiritual warfare is a, is infinitely more dangerous than any human war that was ever fought? Human wars are between people. Human wars can end lives for time. Jesus said, don't fear the one who can kill your body, you fear the ones who can kill your body and soul in hell. This spiritual warfare that we are a part of is more serious than any human war has ever been. Paul says, we wage war, but not in the flesh. We wage war with spiritual weapons. What are the physical what are the fleshly weapons that Satan uses? I'd say two, power, deception. Power, if you're attacked, attack back. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, you cut them off. You don't get your way, quit. Your feelings are hurt, ghost them. You get accused, turn the tables. You get angry, ridicule. Now, I gotta be honest with you, I like ridicule because it can be so effective, right? And it's kind of fun. I love this story, have you heard John... Pope John Twenty Third quoted, one time he was asked, how many people work at the Vatican? He said, about half of them. <laughs> That's a good line. That's effective, right? Abraham Lincoln once had a political opponent. He said, my political opponent can compress the most words into the smallest ideas of any man I've ever met. Ridicule. Ann Landers one time said she was introduced to a politician at a social event here in D.C. He kind of sarcastically greeted her. but Oh, you're Ann Landers. Tell me something wise. She said, oh, you're a politician. Tell me a lie. <laughs> That's, power. That's kind of effective. Weapons of this world. You know who a hero is? Of the weapons of this world is. Back in the 60s, Saul Alinsky wrote a thing called Rules for Radicals that progressives have embraced ever since. Listen to one of his rules. Ridicule is man's most potent weapon, there is no defense. It's almost impossible to counteract ridicule. That's the weapon of the world, Paul says. By the way, Olinsky also says, power, in his Rules for Radical, power is not only what you have, but what the enemy thinks you have. Keep pressing on, never let up. He said, what you need to do is protest in a way that invites the authorities to, to work against you because then you'll appear to the world like the underdog and everybody roots for the underdog against the authorities. That's manipulation. That's worldly power. And I would suggest it would be a good idea for you to understand who the people are who are embracing Sololinsky today. He loves Satan. That's satanic. In fact, Satan, he said this, Sololinsky about Satan. He said, Satan was the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did so effectively that he won his own kingdom. Power of this world. The other weapon of the flesh is deception. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. See, if Satan can just get people to believe a lie, good is evil, evil is good. Tolerance is in, Ill, uh, intolerant. Intolerance is good. He wins. When attacked... By the flesh, by weapons of the flesh. Don't respond in the flesh. That's what Paul says. Be meek. I, Paul, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, meekness, of course, is not weakness. In ancient times, there was a saying that a person was as meek as a war horse. War horses were not weak. The idea of a, a meek horse was a horse that had been wild and independent, being being tamed so that it was under control and responsive to the master, meekness is great power under the leadership of God. So when criticized, respond in meekness. You know what that means? Several things. First of all, I I think it means sometimes the best response is no response. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. You say, if I do that, turn the other cheek, I'd be weak. I'll get taken advantage of. I'll look silly. If you think you look weak, not turning the other cheek, not slapping back, would you just always remember the three stooges? You ever look at the three stooges and say, boy, they are strong people? No. What do the three stooges do? I think, I I really do believe that when the stories of Jesus were taught about, you know, turn the other cheek, I think the three stooges missed that day in Sunday school. Because what do they do? Whenever they slapped, what do they They slap back. Nobody looks and says, oh, the three suits, they're so wise. They're so strong. No, you say, they're so silly. They're so childish. See, it takes strength not to strike back. Confidence, because you know you're going to win. Weak people, people who are afraid of losing, strike back. Remember the story of Moses in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 14? The people of Israel have just been freed from Egypt. Pharaoh changes his mind, sends his armies, the strongest armies in the the world, to pursue them and bring them back. The people of Israel find themselves trapped by kind of a cul-de-sac of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army on one side, Red Sea on the other. They panic. What does Moses say? Exodus 14, 13 Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. The Lord will fight the battle for you. You must be quiet. Are there any battles that you're facing right now that you're really tempted to respond in the flesh? And God is saying, the battle's the Lord's. Be quiet. What happened? They were still. And God provided. He protected. He opened the way through the Red Sea. They walked over on dry ground, and when the Egyptian armies tried to God took care of them. You ever think what would happen if what would have happened if the people of Israel had actually responded in the flesh? What would have happened if they had actually lashed out and fought back? It would have been a bloodbath. So many people would have died unnecessarily. God wouldn't have been able to be glorified as he was. Hear Moses say, the Lord will fight for you. You must only be still. Isn't that what Jesus did in the garden? He could have fought back. He could have called down a legion of angels. Boy, that would have been so impressive. Jesus calls down this legion of angels that just kind of wipes out the people that are going to arrest him. People would have believed that would have been impressive. But Jesus says, put the swords away. God has this. And God brought victory. We do not fight with weapons of this world. We must be still. Not because we're weak, but because we're so confident of our victory. Romans chapter 8, verse 37. In these things, you are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. When you are insulted, don't insult back. When you are hurt, don't sulk When you're undermined in the office, don't power up. When you're betrayed, don't gossip. When you're cheated, don't think, how am I going to get revenge? God gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes meekness means turn the other cheek. The best response is no response. Sometimes you have to respond. Understand meekness is not passivity for the sake of passivity, meekness is obeying God. It is power under control because we're always saying, God, how do you want me to respond in this situation? Never in the flesh, but always in the spirit. Paul takes two chapters to respond to those who are trying to undermine his ministry and his credibility, but he doesn't respond in the flesh. Verse three, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Verse four, we demolish arguments and every proud thing that raises itself up against the knowledge of God that we take Every thought captive to obey Christ. We do not wage war. Our war is not in the flesh. It's a battle for the minds and hearts of people. And that is why we have several. I want to spend the rest of our time talking about the weapons of spiritual warfare. How do you respond with weapons of the Spirit? The truth of Scripture is our first weapon. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, as soon as I talk about truth, I can just see kind of eyes glazing over. You know, how ethereal. No, it's very practical. Remember what Jesus said in John 8, 31? If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. Do you know God's word? Are you studying God's word? Is his word in you? You're his disciple. If not, but he says, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. See, Satan attacks this generation with lies. It's a spiritual battle for the mind. It's a spiritual battle where he says, hey, there's no absolute truth. Don't trust the Bible. It's all all about your personal perspective. Don't be an absolutist. Don't take God seriously. You don't really have to take God seriously. He'll say... Everything is good. Don't worry. Everyone is good. Don't worry about sin. On the other hand, he'll go to the extreme to say, You are so evil. God would never forgive you. You could never be good with God. Pleasure, he'll tell you, is the ultimate good. It's the ultimate pursuit in life. If something is pleasurable, that's what you go for. That's what loving is. If it's not pleasurable, it's not good. He lies and tells you a fetus is not made in God's image. A fetus is just a choice. What is a man? What is a woman? You decide. Nobody can decide that far. You decide who is a man and a woman. Rebellion is cool. Surrender to Jesus is boring. Money will make you secure. Success will satisfy your soul. Just keep going for success. Are you depressed? Entertain your depression away. You need more time on your cell phone and computers. That'll do it for you. Immorality is not the problem Christians are. If Christians weren't so judgmental, the world would be so much better. Christians are the threat. Understand, the greatest challenge today is not politics and Hollywood, it is the mind. But the good news is, we we live in a time where we have lots of history to learn from, even recent history. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was known as the man the writer who brought down the Soviet Union, and he brought down the Soviet Union as a Christian with truth. In fact, he argues, he, he, his observation was, the reason that people became, the, the Eastern bloc went, went totalitarian and socialist is because they, t- it's not because people wanted that, it's they just got tired of fighting for the truth. They, it was a loss of Christianity. In fact, he warned, this is in the 1970s, we are approaching the brink. Already a universal spiritual demise is upon us, he said. A physical one is about to flare up and engulf us and our children while we continue to smile sheepishly and babble. But what can we do to stop it? We haven't the strength. And his, his appeal was, we dare live not by lies. Robert? Uh, Rod Dreher has a great book by that title um, that he takes inspired inspiration from Sultan Nietzsche. Sultan here really is echoing 2 Corinthians chapter 20. We wage war with truth. Sultan went on <laughs> to say he wanted to write this book called The Oak and the Calf. He said, if it, and he, he saw himself as the calf. He said, the, it, it seems kind of foolish for an, a calf to push against an oak. But he saw himself as the, the calf with truth and the oak of, of, of socialism, he said, as, 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 as an oak filled with lies rotting at the core and the oxen, the ox will get bigger and the tree will rot, and eventually the ox can topple the tree. The Soviet Union did, in fact, collapse at the calf's nudging. Solzhenitsyn said, one man who stopped lying can bring down a tyranny. The point of all of this is to say that our situation today is a battle of truth versus lies. Jesus said, I am the truth, and Satan is the father of lies. We fight skirmishes in the office, in our schools, in our homes, on our televisions, in the halls of education, in the halls of Congress. They are skirmishes. The wars are won and lost in the mind. But we need to be more confident and joyful in the process. Listen to Paul's confidence in verse four. We demolish arguments. And every proud thing that that is raised up against the knowledge of God, isn't that interesting in the month of pride? We take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. We need to know the truth. We need to live the truth. We need to speak the truth. We need to be ready to do it boldly and joyfully and we'll win the battle. I saw that recently Demonstrated for us by the Oklahoma softball team, girls softball team. For three years now, they've won the NCAA women's championship. And recently, they were interviewed after their last victory. They were interviewed on ESPN. Watch this, my heart. This is what it looks like to demolish foolish arguments. Let's watch this together.
0: The joy of the game, but I'm curious. It's a long season, right? You guys have had the target on your back the entire time. The win streak being number one with ESPN for, for the players. I know you talked about keeping the joy of the game, but I'm curious. It's a long season, right? And you guys have had the target on your back the entire time. The win streak being number one. How do you handle the unique pressure that comes with that? How do you keep the joy for so long when anxiety seems like a thing that could very easily set in? Well, the only way
2: that you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. And any other type of joy is actually happiness that comes from circumstances and outcomes. Um, I think coach has said this before, but joy from the Lord is really the only thing that can keep you motivated, um,
1: uh, just in a good mindset, uh, no matter the outcomes. Thankfully we've had a lot of success this year, but if it was the other way around, uh, joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you embracing those memories, moments, friendships, and all of that. So uh, I would, that's really the only the only answer to that, because there's no other way that softball can bring you that um, because of how much failure comes in it and just how much of a roller coaster the game can be.
2: One thousand percent agree with Grace Lyons. Um, I went through that my freshman year. I, I was so happy to win the college, I've talked about this before, but I was just so happy that we won the College World Series. But I didn't feel joy. I didn't have I didn't know what to do the next day. I didn't know what to do for that following week. I didn't feel filled and I had to find Christ in that and I think that is what makes our team so strong is that we're not afraid to lose because if it's not the end of the world if we do lose, yes, obviously we've worked our butts off to be here and we want to win, but it's not the end of the world because our life is in Christ and that's all that matters. Yeah, um I think a huge thing that we've really just latched onto is eyes up and you guys Mm -hmm. see us doing this and pointing up, but we're really like fixing our eyes on Christ. And that's something where, like they were saying, you can't find a fulfillment in an outcome, whether it's good or bad. And, um, I think that's why we're so steady in what we do and and our love for each other and our love for the game, because we know this game is giving us the opportunity to glorify God. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just think once we figured that out and that was our purpose and everyone was all in with that, um, it's really changed so much for us. And I mean, I know myself, I've seen so much of a growth in myself with um, once I turned to Jesus and I realized how he had changed my outlook on life, not just softball, but understanding how much I have to live for. And that's living to Exemplify the kingdom, and I think that brings so much freedom and i 'm sure everyone 's story is similar, but we all have those great testimonies that have really like shown how awesome it is to play for something bigger um, and I think that 's just what brings me so much joy and no matter the outcome, whether we get a trophy in the end or not, we're, this isn 't our home, and I think that 's what 's amazing about it is we have so much more we have an eternity of joy with our father, and i 'm so excited about that and Yes, I live in the moment, but I know this isn't my home. And um, no matter what, my sisters in Christ will be there with me in the end um, when we're with our, our King. So. Life in their
1: eyes. Do you see the joy in their eyes? Do you hear the truth of what they're saying? That's what it looks like, I think, to demolish arguments. They knew the truth. They were living the truth. They had the joy of the truth. And they're ready to share the truth when the opportunity is given. Hey, are you ready? Ephesians 6, 10 says, be strengthened in the Lord and in His vast strength. Stand with the truth. That's a belt around your waist. Be confident and joyful. The other power, another weapon of our warfare is the Holy Spirit in prayer. Paul says in verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. David Young is a friend of mine tells about a friend of his who's a church planter in India in a place dominated by Hindus. And so he has to be very careful what he says outside, which has caused him to pray, spend that much more time in prayer in his house. And he waits for God's opportunities. He said one day he was praying, next door neighbor knocked on his door. He said, "I, I don't know you, but I hear you are praying, man. My son is sick. Would you come pray for my son? He said, sure, let me put on my slippers. He went and prayed for the boy, came home, He said a week later, there was another knock at the door. It was that neighbor again. The neighbor said, oh, by the way, I I came to let you know my son has been healed. I have a neighbor whose son is sick, and she's asked, would you come over to our house to pray for her son now? He said, sure. He went and he prayed over the woman's boy. A few weeks later, he said he opened the door. It was like practically the whole neighborhood was standing outside his door. The first man said, We know what you did for my son and for my neighbor's son. We were just wondering, could you tell us about this person, Jesus Christ, that you prayed to? He said, Within a month, the entire neighborhood had been baptized into Christ. See, the weapons of our world, you know why the world strikes back? Because they know they're losing. We have power through the Holy Spirit in prayer to demolish strongholds. Does that mean that every time you pray, God's immediately going to respond like a genie? No, but you know people who pray have power. As Evie Hill said, much prayer, much power. No prayer, no power. You're saying, that is true. I I don't know. I've ever seen prayer answered. So, dramatically. Yes, you are. You are sitting in a building that is the response of an answer to prayer, to many prayers. And my guess is that you're also sitting beside people whose lives have been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer. If you want to follow along in your notes online, I have a number of scriptures that talk about the power of the Holy Spirit when we pray. Will you commit to pray? Who are you praying for this week? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 8, our authority, which the Lord gave us for building you up, not for tearing you down. You want to know the power of the flesh? The power of the flesh tears people down, it divides people and tears people apart. But when the power of the Holy Spirit works, people are built up. That is why the last weapon that we're going to talk about is the weapon of genuine love that makes disciples. You know, God's plan for this world? God's plan A is not the government. It's not politics. God's plan, it's not do good organizations. It's the church. Jesus came and he gave his life to seek and to save the lost. And then he said to the church, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Go make disciples. You want to change your worlds? Make a disciple lead people to Christ. I love the example of Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was a nasty guy, worked for Nixon as a hatchet man. But his life started to change when he got to the White House and he felt empty. He said he thought this is it. And he had friends who started talking to him about Christ. Even though he's an atheist, he got curious. He read the Bible In C.S. Lewis Mere Christianity, he gave his life to Christ, his life was changed, he confessed what he did wrong, and he went to jail. But after prison, he was released. Lost lots of things, but he got a calling from God and he started a ministry called Prison Fellowship. Today, prison fellowship has ministries in prisons all around the world, sharing Christ with people, helping prisoners be set free spiritually. I gotta admit, I'll confess. I'm biased. My daughter, Emily, works for Prison Fellowship and she's constantly sending us interviews that she's doing with prisoners whose lives have been changed because somebody shared with them the gospel. Why? Because somebody discipled Chuck Colson. I'm convinced that Satan's knees buckle more at the threat of one Chuck Colson being brought to, to Christ, one disciple being brought to Christ, then hundreds and thousands of angry protesters in the streets because it's a spiritual warfare. It's one as people come to love God and know his truth and love other people as well. You wanna make a difference. I know you're really, some are really upset about what's happening in our world today. And so you're going to make a difference through voting. Wahoo, good, vote, that's fine. You're going to make a difference through your editing or or your your writing to editors and your angry stuff online. (laughs) You want to make a difference, make a disciple. There's so many people who are Christians who are willing to protest online and on the streets who won't get off their butts and go talk to their neighbor about Christ. We do not fight with the weapons of this world. We fight with the love of Christ, leading people to him. You hear stories about this all the time. I read just this past week the headline, man who was once powerful drug lord gives his life to Christ and becomes a pastor. A couple of months ago, I read about some porn star who became a, a pastor. God's doing it all the time. Herman Menendez was once a drug addict and drug lord, gang banger, finally lands himself in prison. Prison where his brother is being held as well. What changes his life? A simple invitation to a worship service. His brother invited him to a chapel service. Menendez said, when my brother said that, I thought to myself, what's he talking about? Praise the Lord, hallelujah, we're in prison. Is he out of his mind? And his brother then told me he he has been praying for me. He said, I went and sitting in the back, the pastor said, There's someone here who's been telling God that he wants peace. The peace that God can give you surpasses all of your understanding. You know who you are. God can change your life. Mendoza said, I just felt this peace come over me. I knew it was for me. I was like, How does this man know my story? He said he gave his life to Christ, he found the peace of God, and now. He's pastoring, sharing Christ's love with others. How did it all begin? Prayer and a simple invitation. Who are you praying for? Who are you inviting? When was the last time you said, Lord, today, help me share Jesus? How often are you inviting somebody? You're the light of the world. It's a spiritual battle fought with truth, Prayer, the Holy Spirit, and making disciples. So Paul says in verse 16, he ends, he says, our goal is that we may preach the gospel to the regions beyond you. Hey, let's not take our eyes off the goal. Our goal is not to win arguments or political power. It's reach lost people for Christ. Paul says, so let the one who boasts boast in the Lord for it's not the one commending himself who is approved but the one the Lord commends. There's going to come a day when you see God face to face and I pray you will hear him say, well done. But you go to bed tonight and I wonder if when you go to bed tonight you'll hear God say, well done. You fought a good fight you didn't respond to the slap with a slap but you knew the truth you lived the truth you shared the truth you prayed the power of the holy spirit was seen through you you made disciples well done heavenly father i pray that we would be people that we be your church that we would not fight in the flesh which is so tempting because we live in a world of people who that's all they know how to fight with and it's so tempting to but, but Lord help us to hear you say we are more than conquerors through him who loved us that we have the truth of scripture and the lies cannot stand against it help us be faithful where we are Help us to love people enough to share Christ with them. So we pray for our families. We pray for our children. We pray for our neighbors. We pray for those in power. We pray for celebrities who are lost. We pray for the person you want us to talk to today. We pray that you'll say to us one day, well done. Through Christ I pray. I